Thank you very much, Father. Your story about my book made me think of another story of a writer who died and woke up to find himself in an uncomfortably hot cauldron, boiling water, demons round the cauldron all the time putting fresh logs underneath. And after he'd endured this for a time, he looked out over the top of his cauldron and he saw next to him a man in another cauldron. But the other man's cauldron was much more comfortable. The water wasn't boiling, it was just a moderate warmth, and the man was basking at his ease with great pleasure. So the writer said to the man next door, what did you do? Oh, he said, I killed my wife. That's why I'm down here. And what did you do? And the other man said, I, I don't know why I'm down here. I merely wrote books. And then, after a time, the writer got very indignant and he called out to the demons nearby, is there no justice here in hell? I wrote books, was a very respectable person, and now you make the water boiling. Whereas next door, here's a man who's a murderer and he just has the water to a very comfortable heat so he can enjoy himself. Ah, said the demon, but... The man next door may have killed his wife, he did so in a fit of temper, but he's repented long ago, and his wife's forgiven him, so that's all right. But you, you wrote books, and people are still buying your books, and reading them, and being influenced by them. <laughs> and every time somebody buys one of your books, we put another log underneath this cauldron fire. <laughs> So people who write books may be responsible for more than they intended. <laughs> the general title of our talks in this summer institute is Who Am I? And I suppose most of us, most of the time, think that we have a clear and definite idea who we are. Occasionally we have identity crises. I suffer a recurrent identity crisis with the income tax authorities in Britain. I used to file my returns under my secular name, Timothy Ware. And then the income tax authorities complained and said, but there's somebody else living at the same address who's called Bishop Callistos, and he never files any income tax returns. <laughs> so then I changed and began filing my returns under the name Bishop Callistos. And they wrote back and complained, we haven't had an income tax return from Timothy Ware. <laughs> and if you happen to be two people and the income tax authorities think you are one person, you can prove your point by both turning up simultaneously to see the income tax officer. But if the income tax authorities 
think that you are two persons when you are really one, how do you prove the point to them? <laughs> so we still have an unresolved argument. Another identity crisis I had some time ago, I was at a conference in Athens and I was talking with Father John Meyendorf and the then rector of St. Sergius Theological Institute in Paris, Father Alexis Knyazev, came up and Father John introduced me to him. I wasn't a bishop then. He said, here's Father Kalistos. Father Knyazev, who was very short-sighted, looked over his spectacles and he said to me with great emphasis, you are not Father Callistos. So we don't usually find our identity denied point blank <laughs> by someone who we've never met before. So I said, but I am Father Callistos. No, he said, that is not possible. So I said, why do you think I am not Father Callistos? And he looked over his glasses again. He said, I can tell you I have read a number of things that Father Callistos has written, and it is quite evident from his writings, this was uh, 25 years ago, it is quite evident from his writings that he is an old, old man. <laughs> Whereupon Father Knyazev turned on his heel and refused to accept that I was Father Callistos. I'm sorry to say Father John Meyendorf, who was enjoying this conversation, didn't help me at all. <laughs> However, most of the time we think we know who we are. But do we, in fact, know in the full and profound sense who we are? One text that is very important for the orthodox understanding of the human person is Psalm 63, or 64, in the Hebrew numbering, verse 6. The heart is deep. And I would like to set that as a motto for my series of five talks. The heart is deep. That means the human person is a profound mystery. There are depths, or if you like, heights within myself of which I have very little understanding. A good illustration of the way in which personhood is a mystery is my favorite among the writings of C.S. Lewis, the novel Till We Have Faces. And part of the theme of that novel is that we don't, in fact, really know who we are. Who am I? The answer is not at all obvious. My personhood as a human being ranges widely over space and time. And indeed it reaches out beyond space into eternity, 
beyond space into infinity and beyond time into eternity. Our human personhood is created, but it transcends the created order. As is said in 2 Peter 1.4, I am called to be a partaker of the divine nature. I am called to share, that is to say, in the uncreated energies of the living God. Our human vocation is theosis, deification, divinization. As St. Basil the Great says, the human being is a, is a creature that is called to become God. This morning, Dr. Dalek reminded us of the uh, story of the fall at the beginning of Genesis of the promise of the serpent who says to Eve, you shall be as gods. The irony behind that story is that this was exactly the divine intention, that humans should become God. But the fall consisted in the fact that Adam and Eve grasped with self-will that which God in his own time and way would have conferred upon them as a gift. So we are to see that the limits of our personhood are very wide-ranging indeed. And I think we should adopt a dynamic view of what it is to be a person. We shouldn't think that our personhood is something fixed. To be a person is to grow, to be on a journey. And this journey is a journey that has no limits, that stretches out forever that goes on even in heaven. Some people have an idea of heaven as a place where you do nothing in particular. But surely that is deceptive. Surely heaven means that we continue to advance by God's mercy from glory to glory. Heaven, if you like, is an end without end. Saint Irenaeus remarks, even in the age to come, God will always have new things to teach us, and we shall always have new things to learn. So, even in heaven, we shall never be in a position to say to God, you are repeating yourself. We have heard it all before. <laughs> On the contrary, heaven means continuing wonder and unending discovery. To quote J.R.R. Tolkien in The Hobbit, roads go ever, ever on. 
Now, there is a specific reason for this mysterious and indefinable character of human personhood. And this reason is given to us by St. Gregory of Nyssa, writing in the fourth century. God, says he, is a mystery beyond all understanding. We humans are formed in God's image. The image should reproduce the characteristics of the archetype, of the original. So, if God is beyond understanding, then the human person formed in God's image is likewise beyond understanding. Precisely because God is a mystery, I too am a mystery. Now, in mentioning the image, we've come to the most important factor in our humanness. And this was something that Dr. Dalek also spoke about this morning. Who am I? As a human person, I am formed in the image of God. That is the most important and basic fact about my personhood. We are God's living icons. Each of us is a created expression of God's infinite and uncreated self-expression. So this means it's impossible to understand the human person apart from God. Humans cut off from God are no longer authentically human, they are subhuman. If we lose our sense of the divine, we lose equally our sense of the human. And that we can see very clearly from the story of for example, Soviet communism in the 70 years that followed the revolution in 1917. Soviet communism sought to establish a society where the existence of God would be denied and the worship of God would be suppressed and eliminated. At the same time, Soviet communism showed an appalling disregard for the dignity of the human person. And I think those two things go together. Whoever affirms the human also affirms God. Whoever denies God also denies the human person. The human being cannot be properly understood except with reference to the divine. The human being is not autonomous, not self-contained. I do not contain my meaning within myself. 
as a person in God's image, I point always beyond myself to the divine realm. I remember in my student years in Oxford, there came Archimandrite Sophroni, the disciple of St. Silvan of Mount Athos. And he gave a talk on orthodoxy, and there was a discussion afterwards. Towards the end, the chairman said, we have time for just one more question. That's always dangerous, because then somebody will get up and ask an unanswerable question. I always dread the last question. <laughs> and so it happened at this meeting, somebody got up at the back of the audience and said, Father Sophroni, please tell us, what is God? And Father Sophroni answered very briefly, you tell me, what is man? God and the human person are two mysteries that are interconnected and neither can be understood apart from the other. So in the image of God means there's a vertical reference in our personhood. We can only be understood in terms of our link with the divine. But then let's think of another point. In the image of God means in the image of the Trinity. As St. Gregory the theologian says, when I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is what, as Christians, we mean by God. We don't understand God as a series of abstractions. We understand God as three persons. And that we see very clearly from the Creed. We begin in the Creed by saying, I believe in one God. And then we don't continue by saying, who is an uncaused cause, who is primordial reality, who is the ground of being, which is the way many modern theologians speak. But in the creed we say, I believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We continue, that is to say, in specific personal terms. So then, God for us is Trinity, and if we're in the image of God, then we're in the image of the triune God. And what does that mean for our understanding of our personhood? Let's think first of the Trinity and then of ourselves. is love. 1 John 4, 8. 
And St. John in the same chapter says a little later on, 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In true love there is no exclusiveness, no jealousy. True love is open, not closed. I remember from my student days the danger of getting your biblical references slightly wrong. <laughs> A friend of mine wanted to send a telegram to a couple whom he knew who were getting married because he couldn't go to the marriage himself. And he thought he'd use this text from 1 John 4:18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But he thought he'd save money and instead of transmitting in the telegram the full quotation, he thought he'd just give the biblical reference. 1 John 4:18, the first epistle of John. Unfortunately, the post office dropped off the one just before one John. So the reference was no longer to the first epistle of John, but now to the gospel of John. And if you look up John 4.18, you will find the following words from the conversation of Christ with the Samaritan woman. You have told the truth for you have had five husbands already <laughs> and he whom you now have is not your true husband. <laughs> that required some explanation <laughs> as a marriage greeting. So if you're sending biblical telegrams, it's better to quote in full. <laughs> God is love. There is no fear in love. God is love. God is not the love of one. God is not love in the sense of being self-love, turned in upon itself. God is not a closed unit. God is not a unit, but a union. God is love in the sense of shared love, the mutual love of three persons in one. When the Cappadocian fathers in the fourth century are describing God, one of their key words is kinonia, meaning fellowship or communion or relationship. As St. Basil says in his work on the Holy Spirit, the union of the Godhead lies in the kinonia, the interrelationship of the person. So then this is what the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is saying. God is shared love, not 
self-love. God is openness, exchange, solidarity, self-giving. Now, we are to apply all this to human persons made in the image of God. God is love, says St. John, and that great English prophet of the 18th century, William Blake, says, man is love. God is love. Not self-love, but mutual love. And the same is true, then, of the human person. God is kinonia, relationship. Communion. So also is the human person in the Trinitarian image. God is openness, exchange solidarity, self-giving. The same is true of the human person when living in a Trinitarian mode according to the image. There's a book that isn't much read today, but I think it's a very helpful book by a British philosopher, John McMurray. Persons in Relationship, published around 1952. And the theme of this book is exactly the theme that I've just been outlining. Makamari insists that relationship is constitutive of personhood. He argues that there is no true person unless there are at least two persons communicating with each other. In other words, I need you in order to be myself. McMurray doesn't, in fact, relate this to the doctrine of the Trinity, which he could have done, and I think that would have strengthened his argument. From this, it follows that the characteristic human word is not I, but we. If we are all the time saying I, 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 then we are not realizing our true personhood. That's expressed in the poem of Walter de la Mer, Napoleon, 
What is this world, O oh soldiers? It is I. This winter snow through which we go, this leaden sky, soldiers, this wilderness is I. And that surely is very true whether Napoleon was an example of that kind of egoism or not, self-centeredness is in the end coldness, isolation, it is a desert. It's no coincidence, as I was saying in my talk last night, that in the Lord's Prayer, the model of prayer that God has given us, which teaches us what we are to be. The word us comes five times, the word our three times, the word we once. But nowhere in the Lord's Prayer do we find the word me or mine or I. This is the end of side one. Please turn the cassette over for the continuation of the message on side two. I illustrated that by telling the story of the old woman and the onion, but I shan't tell it again. When the old woman said, it's my onion, when she refused to say it's ours, she was denying her essential personhood according to the Trinitarian image. The beginning of the era of modern philosophy, the early 17th century, the philosopher Descartes put forward his famous dictum Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And following that model, a great deal of discussion of human personhood since the 17th century has centered round the notion of self-awareness, self-consciousness. But the difficulty of that model is it doesn't bring in the element of relationship. So instead of saying cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, Ought we not, as Christians who believe in the Trinity, to say, Amo ergo sum, I love, therefore I am. And still more, ought we not to say, Amor ergo sum, I am loved, therefore I am. One modern poem that I love particularly 
by the English poet Kathleen Raine has exactly as its title, Amo Ergo Sum. Let me quote some words from it. Because I love, the sun pours out its rays of living gold, pours out its gold and silver on the sea. Because I love, the ferns grow green and green the grass and green the transparent sunlit trees. Because I love, all night the river flows into my sleep. Ten thousand living things are sleeping in my arms and sleeping wake and flowing are at rest. So this is the key to personhood according to the Trinitarian image, not isolated self-awareness, but relationship in mutual love. In the words of the great Romanian theologian, Father Dimitri Stanilawe, In so far as I am not loved, I am unintelligible to myself. So, if we think of the divine image, we should not only think of the vertical dimension, being in the image of God, we should also think of the Trinitarian implications, which mean the image has a horizontal dimension, relationship with my fellow humans. Perhaps the best definition of the human animal is a creature capable of mutual love after the image of God the Holy Trinity. So here is the essence of our personhood. co dwelling in others. What is said by Christ in his prayer to the Father at the Last Supper is surely very significant for our understanding of personhood. John 17, 22 to 23. May they all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so also may they be one in us. Exactly. The mutual love of the three divine persons is seen as the model for our human personhood. Even as. That is vital for our salvation. We are here on earth to reproduce within time the love that passes in eternity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Speaking of this idea of solidarity, I am reminded of 
a story told of someone whose icon is just here beside me, Saint John Maximovich of Shanghai and San Francisco, who was glorified a few years ago by the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia, someone whom I had the very great privilege of meeting on various occasions. And I remember one story told to me by one of his priests. This priest was sitting up at night worrying over the financial problems of his parish. He did not see how they could make ends meet economically, how they could pay their mortgage. And the longer he sat up and brooded over these problems, the more insoluble they appeared. At three o'clock in the morning, the telephone rang, and it was Archbishop John, who was 300 miles away. And all Archbishop John said, without asking any questions, is, you won't solve your problems by sitting up all night and worrying. Why don't you go to bed? And he rang off. And the priest said to me, there is a true bishop who cares so much for his flock that he knew when one of his priests at 3 a.m. was sitting up and worrying. And he rang up and told him to go to bed. <laughs> exactly, someone like Archbishop John shows what St. Paul means when we, he says that we should make the joys and sorrows of others our own joys and sorrows, that we should bear one another's burdens. That is essential and fundamental to our personhood. Before ending the first part of my talk this afternoon, I'd like to note an ecological corollary of what I've been saying. If we think of human persons in this way as signifying mutual love, then it means that there is not a sharp and utterly impenetrable line of demarcation between the human animal and other animals. Descartes, in saying, I think, therefore I am, made the essence of personhood to be conscious self-awareness and abstract power of reasoning. And this has meant that at any rate since the 17th century, humans have usually been thought of as cut off from the rest of creation. And that has had very unfortunate ecological consequences. If you have a Christian Trinitarian approach, Perhaps our attitude is rather different. It may be true that only humans are made in the image of God, but if the characteristic element of personhood is mutual love, then certainly mutual love is something that the animals show towards one another. So if we think of ourselves in Trinitarian terms, then we may perhaps see ourselves as humans 
not as set up over nature, but as part of nature. And if we can do that, then perhaps we shall stop abusing and raping nature in the way that we've been doing in the 20th century. Because by misusing nature, we are blaspheming against God, who is the creator of nature. To misuse our natural resources to treat animals with cruelty is actually a very grave sin though Christians have not usually taught that to be so. So the approach to human nature that I've been suggesting is well exemplified by some words again from the poet Kathleen Rain. Seas, trees, and voices cry, nature is your nature. There I shall stop for a moment and perhaps ask you if there are any questions or comments that people would like to make. Who would like to be the first? Yes. Well, I, I just wanted to ask if you would spell her last name, Kathleen Ray. Okay. Yes, there could be such an imbalance. Um, I'm sure that there's been an imbalance in the opposite direction and that many people calling themselves Christians have in fact treated animals with great cruelty and have exploited living creatures for their own selfish ends. And in trying to correct that imbalance, yes, there is certainly a danger that we might go too far in the opposite direction. However, I wouldn't want to set up an opposition of either or. I would prefer to say both and. Of course we should care for humans, and of course humans are infinitely precious in God's eyes. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also care for the animals. I think we can do both. Though there is an ordered hierarchy within God's creation. Yes? You give us a way to express the theosis, uh, and particularly in light of the danger of 
being, speaking of pantheism, where, in, at least in our Western culture here, the New Age movement and or the, the evangelical uh, power of positive thinking movement leads so easily into that, how do we state this yet without crossing that line? To a, to a person who is a non-believer or a person who is coming from another tradition. Yes. The um, doctrine of theosis, as we all know, I'm sure, talking to other Christians, can often be a stumbling block and is very often misunderstood. And we need to say, first of all, very definitely that there is a difference between God as creator and ourselves as created human persons. And this difference between the uncreated God and us created persons is never abolished. It continues in heaven. We do not become additional members of the Holy Trinity, nor are we absorbed into the Godhead, as some Eastern religions affirm. There continues to all eternity to be a relationship person to person, I and thou, between us and God. We are not absorbed. We remain created persons, and yet we transcend the limits of our personhood in love. We reach out beyond the limits of our personhood, and we meet God. So our model has to be a union without confusion. We are truly united with God, and yet our distinctive created human personhood is not abolished. And here our model is what we affirm of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, is true and complete God, and at the same time, truly and completely human. And between the divine nature and the human nature in Christ, there is union, but not confusion. Christ's created human personhood is deified, filled with the divine grace and glory but it still remains created human personhood. It is transfigured but not abolished. Now that is our model, what happens to our humanness in the person of Christ. And so in heaven there is union but not confusion. I think we should not be afraid of continuing to use the language of tradition which speaks of deification, but we do certainly have to explain it. But this language of deification, we can point out to people, has a very clear basis in Holy Scripture. Not just the text I quoted from 2 Peter, Partakers of the Divine Nature, but the idea in the fourth gospel of mutual indwelling, John 17. As 
you, Father, are in me and I in you, so also may they be one, not just with one another, but one in us. Running all through St. John's Gospel, there's the idea of a real sharing in the life and glory and light of God. And the same is to be found in St. Paul. When I was a student, I rather dreaded in my theology course when we came to St. Paul because I thought St. Paul was very Protestant and I didn't like that very much and I thought St. Paul was on all the time about justification by faith but when I read St. Paul and saw what he really said I recognized yes justification by faith is part of St. Paul's teaching but St. Paul has also an aspect which we can only call strongly mystical. If we are reading the epistle to the Romans, the opening chapters that speak of justification by faith should be read in the light of Romans 6, where he says that through baptism we are buried with Christ and risen with Christ, that we become one with Christ in his death and one with him in his resurrection. There there is an idea of true sharing in the life of Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, not I but Christ in me. Now some people say, well that is mere metaphor. Well there are no such things as mere metaphors. All metaphors have power. And was St. Paul merely speaking metaphorically, perhaps he meant us to take him literally, that Christ does really dwell in us, that we are truly to say, his life is mine. Surely the phrase which is so characteristic of St. Paul, in Christ, is to be taken in the very fullest possible meaning. So I would find not the word, deification, but the idea of deification running right through the New Testament. But we do have to make clear that this is not the same as what is being said in Eastern religions or in the New Age. We shouldn't give up using this language, but we can sometimes explain it. Yes? Uh, would you comment further on the relationship between the homoousion, as you've alluded to, and theosis? I think the word homoousios is referring to something rather different from the term theosis. Homoousios, the key word in the Nicene Creed, means one in essence. The Creed says that Jesus Christ is one in essence, consubstantial with the Father. And though the creed does not say this, Christian tradition from the 4th century has also affirmed the same thing of the Holy Spirit, that he is one in essence. So this term homoousios is referring to the divine unity within the Holy Trinity. We, however, we created humans, never become one in essence with the Father. Theosis does not mean that we share in the divine essence, but it means we share in the divine energies, that is to say, in divine grace and glory. Um, I, maybe it wasn't as clear. Um, if 
Jesus Christ is, as some people have called, the personalizing person. In this sense, does then the homoousion of the incarnation, uh, does it actually constitute the atonement then? Uh, there is a double homoousios. Thank you for making, uh, mentioning or implying that. Jesus Christ, when we turn to his person as God incarnate, he is one in essence with the Father, homoousios with the Father in his Godhead, but in his humanity he is one in essence with us. So we say Jesus Christ is fully and completely God, fully and completely human not 50% God and 50% human, but 100% God and 100% human. And yet he is one single undivided person. So Jesus Christ is fully one with us. As God incarnate, he is unique, but in that he takes our humanity into himself, we could also say that Jesus Christ is the model of what it means to be human. If we want to understand what it means to be human, we look at Jesus Christ. And exactly the orthodox understanding of atonement, I think, doesn't use primarily juridical categories like satisfaction, but it emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ has taken our humanity into himself, has healed it, has divinized it. Yes. Yes. Your Grace, would you mind speaking to the topic of sharing and suffering as it affects our journey together toward oneness in God? Yes. What I was saying about personhood after the Trinitarian image meaning sharing certainly has a special meaning that we are to share in each other's joys, yes, but also in each other's sorrows. That we are to suffer with other people. But in suffering with other people, we seek also with Christ's help to offer them hope. People who are suffering deeply may say, I don't want sympathy. I want the pain to stop. So simply to say, I suffer with you, may encourage people, but it may not satisfy them. They may want more than so suffering with others is vitally important. But with Christ's help, we need to also offer them hope. Not just companionship, but a way through. In Christ's case, the cross leads to the resurrection. And if we share in other people's sufferings, which we must indeed do after the Trinitarian image, after the image of the Incarnation, yet we also try to help people to see not just the cross, but the Transfiguration and the Resurrection. I think now we might have a little break.
and come back, what, in about ten minutes' time at quarter to two.